Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 38 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. Whether this is your first time listening to the podcast or you've been with us for a while now, I'm glad that you found us, and it's good to have you here. Go ahead and get yourself comfortable around the campfire, my friend, because on today's episode, we're going to be running through another top 10 list that I've compiled for your listening pleasure. We all love lists, right? There's just something cathartic about counting down from 10 and talking about the things that we enjoy. Plus, top 10 lists just make some great conversation, and that's what I love best about getting us all around the campfire. So if you're new to the show, first let me extend to you a warm welcome. Didi, our canine expedition leader, will be making the rounds to initiate you into the expedition, which he does by sniffing your leg in the most awkward way possible. Lately, he's been doing this deep inhale sort of thing when he's sniffing the leg, so just let it happen. It's all part of the process. But secondly, I wanted to mention that our top 10 countdown episodes are typically more focused episodes, so I tend to leave out any sort of peek behind the scenes or behind the curtain sort of talk. I'll leave that for the episodes where we focus on one specific game, the main episodes of the podcast, as it were. Today, though, we are going to get right into it. So for today's top 10 list, I thought it would be fun to shine the spotlight on one of the things in video games that I think we all take a little for granted sometimes. The things that really add to the overall experience by toughening us up, teaching us the game's mechanics, and by giving the hero's journey some meaning. Struggle and adversity are what mold us into the heroes and heroines we set out to become, and nothing quite gets us there like the many enemies we face along the way. Now, I am not talking about your big bads like Bowser, Ganon, Dr. Wily, or Sephiroth. I'm talking about the rank-and-file enemies that stand in your way. The Koopas, the Zombies, the Street Thugs. These unsung heroes of gaming are a big part of what makes a lot of the games we play so great. I mean, think about it. Without them, there would be no challenge, there would be no growth, and there would be no true reward at the end of it all. And sure, some video games out there don't have any enemies to fight, and that's okay. Those games certainly have a place and still find a way to engage us. But in this episode of the show, we're going to pay homage to the enemies that shaped us into who we are today as I count down my top 10 favorite video game enemies. Now before we get into it, allow me to set the stage with my usual disclaimer when it comes to lists. First, this is my top 10 list, so it contains my personal feelings and opinions on all the baddies that we're going to be talking about today. I can guarantee that your top 10 list will be different than mine, but that is super cool. I am genuinely curious what your favorite enemies are, so if you think about it, reach out to me over on our social media pages and let me know. Now, as far as how I ranked my favorites, I am using the following criteria. First, I only included baddies from games that I have played and experienced firsthand. 
I wanted to speak to my experiences, so if there's an enemy that you felt should be on the list and is not, that is probably why they are not on the list, I just have not played that game that they are in. Second, I took overall coolness or genuine outward appeal into account. Some baddies are just awesome looking to me and I couldn't help but consider that when I was making my list. Third, how they helped enhance the gameplay experience. Looking cool is one thing, but the more they impacted the gameplay experience for me, the higher they are on my list. And lastly, nostalgia helped round out my list. If a specific baddie was able to connect to a memory of mine, that helped place it on the list as well. Now, I'm sure I should have considered things like overall staying power or impact on the gaming industry as a whole, and I kinda sorta do that in some subtle ways. I just didn't really want to go that deep into the list, if I'm being completely honest. I just wanted to have a little fun and share some stories, and that is exactly what we are going to do today. And as usual, before I forget to mention, I did put a call out for comments to our community over on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages before recording the episode, so comments I received will be sprinkled in as we go. Now a quick aside, if that is something that sounds like fun to you and you want to get more involved in future episodes, join us on our social media pages and keep a lookout for when I make those posts calling out for comments. Okay, I think we covered all the bases, so let's cut the chatter and get right into this thing. It is time to count down my top 10 favorite video game enemies. Number 10 Number 10 on my list of favorite video game enemies are the foot soldiers that are found in just about every single Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles video game. While I've dabbled in a decent amount of Ninja Turtle games over my many years on this planet, the foot soldiers specifically in Turtles in Time and Shredder's Revenge stick out above all others if I had to narrow it down. So the Foot Soldiers, or the Foot Ninjas, as I've heard them called as well, are the rank-and-file members of the Foot Clan, which are led by the evil Chrome Dome himself, Shredder. In some adaptations of the Ninja Turtles, Foot Soldiers are generally human, but they can also be robots. I know for the 1980s cartoon, and I assume for the games, the Foot Soldiers tended to be robots as to tone down the potential violence for any potential youngins that would be watching or playing those games. I'm sure the showrunners and game designers didn't want to have little kids eviscerating human enemies with Leonardo's swords or Raphael's size. Though, that would be kind of cool now that I think about it. But anyway... I used to really be into the Ninja Turtles, and I used to watch the cartoons growing up. As far as the video games go, foot soldiers make the perfect rank-and-file enemy to stand in your way. Generally speaking, in games like Turtles in Time and Shredder's Revenge, foot soldiers had many different types, and each type would bring something new to the table. 
your classic purple ones were the usual cannon fodder that fought with their hands and weren't all that intelligent, but there would be many other types of foot soldiers as well. Thinking about turtles in time specifically, there were the blue ones that carried weapons into battle like katanas and battle axes. There were the red ones that would chuck throwing stars at you. Orange ones that would toss daggers while they were in the air. There were the white ones with nunchucks. And the yellow ones that threw this boomerang-style spiky ball thing at you. And who can forget the other red variant that would block all of your incoming attacks? Oh, those assholes were the worst. It all sounds pretty basic when I say all that out loud like this, but right here is what makes the foot soldiers such an amazing enemy. They generally aren't just color swaps. They all bring something new and different to each combat scenario that you find yourself in and make you think on the fly as a player as to what tactics you need to deploy in order to defeat them. On my best days, I would be pummeling on a foot soldier while looking around the rest of the screen. When I saw the orange ones come in from the top of the screen and jump up, I knew that I had a barrage of daggers incoming. I had to either finish the one foot soldier that I was working on, or quickly find some way to evade the attack and put myself in a position to counterattack. And again, sounds basic, but this is what makes these sorts of games fun, especially when I was a young kid. It was certainly one thing to play as a ninja, but I had to start thinking like one, and always be aware of what's happening around me. The Foot Soldiers did an amazing job of immersing me into the gameplay experience and offering just the right amount of challenge to make me feel like I earned my victory once I finally beat the game. Number 9 on my list of favorite video game baddies are The Taken from Alan Wake. This game took me by complete surprise when it released back in 2010. Developed by Remedy, which was the development studio behind Max Payne and Max Payne 2, Alan Wake is a third-person action-adventure game that has you playing as the title character. Alan Wake is a best-selling author who heads out to the remote town of Bright Falls on vacation with his wife. Soon after settling in, Wake's wife goes missing, and it's up to us to guide Wake through Bright Falls looking for her. Things get pretty strange, though, as dark forces are at work at Bright Falls. What's even stranger is that Wake comes across pages from a manuscript he can't remember writing and finds that the words he's written on these pages are coming to life before his very eyes. 
Now, I don't want to get too much into the story here, but the dark presence that engulfs the town of Bright Falls is what makes this game so interesting, and it's the swarm of standard enemies that it creates that really make this experience so iconic. The regular enemies that you'll face in Alan Wake are called the Taken. The Taken are people that have been fully possessed by the Dark Presence, and are nothing more than puppets bending to the will of the darkness. Alan himself talks about the Taken in-game, and he sums them up pretty well, I think. Some of the Taken retained echoes of their former selves, but these were just the nerve twitches of a dead thing. Nothing remained but a shell covered and filled with darkness. The Taken are engulfed in a dark shroud, and you can barely make out any defining features. They're almost like shadows that have come to life. Most of the time, the Taken will attack you with melee weapons like knives, axes, and other sharp implements of destruction. They may even throw those objects at you. Some of them can move around the playfield pretty quick, and while they aren't especially intelligent, they can surround you and take you out pretty quick if you aren't paying attention. But what makes the Taken so awesome to me are the way that you have to fight them. It's almost a little cliche, but to fight the darkness in this game, you have to battle it with light. When the Taken first attack you, they'll be shrouded in literal darkness. Using a flashlight that you carry on you, or using other forms of light that you come across, you have to burn away the darkness before the Taken will become vulnerable to the point that you can kill them. Aiming your flashlight at them, you have to destroy their dark armor, and once you do that, the armor will crack and the darkness will vanish. Now that doesn't stop the Taken though, they're still going to be coming after you. But once the darkness has been melted away, you can dispatch them pretty easily with gunfire. It's a very interesting mechanic that adds an engaging element to the combat scenarios, but also makes the take in more than just your run-of-the-mill baddies. You have to balance movement and evasion with chipping away at the Taken's armor, and once you melt it away, you still have to take them down with a good old-fashioned bullet or two. It makes combat encounters very fun, especially when you get comfortable and you find yourself ducking and weaving around enemy attacks while strategically peeling away the darkness protecting them. And while you're fighting them, sometimes the Taken will spout garbled and distorted words or phrases at you, which I assume came from their past lives. It can be very unnerving when they're moving towards you and you hear something like, Please don't feed the animals! Pets must be leashed at all times. Never leave your pet unattended. Oh yeah, it doesn't get any creepier than that. Now, while the Taken are certainly creepy as all hell, let's change things up and talk about an enemy that's anything but. Curtis over on our Facebook group wrote into the show with one of his favorite video game enemies and said, Of course, one of the absolute, most iconic, and memorable enemies out there, which is also a favorite, is Dragon Warrior's Slime. The cute little blue or green drops are everywhere in those games. They may be weak, until you get to the Metal and King versions, but they're always there to kill you with the cutest and happiest of smiles on their faces. While I'm ashamed to admit that I've not put much time into the Dragon Warrior series myself, I'd venture to think most people can probably picture these little bundles of joy in their minds. Their big eyes, dorky smile, and onion-like shape are pretty iconic. 
They're pretty entry-level enemies for the most part from what I remember, but they've been in every single Dragon Warrior game, if I'm not mistaken. They are the perfect baddie to get players rolling in the game, and they make for an awesome launch pad for player development. Plus, they are just so damn cute, and you can't deny that. Very nice call out with this one, Curtis, and thank you for writing in. Number 8 Those of you that have heard this creepy music before are probably having traumatic flashbacks right now. Number 8 on my list of top 10 video game enemies is the Witch from Left 4 Dead. Now I know you can't really classify the Witch as a regular enemy, but I personally don't think of her as a boss either, so while your arguments are probably valid as to why she probably shouldn't be on this list, she's on it because it's my list and I want to talk about her. So, what's the witch and why is she so awesome? Well, let me tell you, my friends. If by some fluke you've never heard of Left 4 Dead before, it's a first-person shooter that was originally released back in 2008. You play as one of four survivors, and your goal is to simply make it to the end of each level alive, all while killing or avoiding hordes upon hordes of zombies in the process. Anyone who's played the game before can tell you how fun it is, especially when you're playing with a group of friends. But what makes Left 4 Dead so unique is its inclusion of some special enemies that can completely change things up if they're present on the battlefield. Some special infected include the Hunter, which can pounce on players and rip them to shreds pretty quickly if a pal doesn't come to the rescue, The Smoker, which can ensnare players with its long tongue and keep them immobile while regular infected swarm them. And then there's the Tank, which is a massive infected monster with incredible strength that can toss players around like ragdolls and take a ton of damage before going down. Each of the special infected all change up the gameplay a bit with their inclusion. You need to take their specific abilities into account so you can tailor your attack strategy accordingly. And if you find yourself playing with human companions, communication will be very important to overcome them, especially if one of you gets snared by a special infected. But of all the special infected that you'll come across, there is none more terrifying than the witch. When a witch is near, the music that was playing before will start to play, and the tension immediately ratchets up. The Witch is a female infected that generally sits in one spot. You can get an idea of where she is if you keep your ears open. She'll usually be sitting on the ground, rocking back and forth, while crying through her long, razor-like claws. (laughs) That is creepy. When the witch is around, you have to be especially careful. She is by far the biggest threat in the entire game, having the ability to incapacitate a player in a single hit or killing them outright. 
You can startle the witch if you accidentally shine your flashlight too close to her, shoot her, or just get too close to her in general. And if you do startle her, she'll run after you with some serious speed. While the witch is certainly killable, you and your friends would be much better off if you gave her a wide berth whenever possible and try to sneak past her. All it takes is just one screw-up and the witch can put an end to your whole party if you aren't careful. And on top of all of that, the witch herself looks absolutely creepy and menacing. She's a long, slender gal with long, dirty hair and large claws, gray skin, and just a putrid image. When she runs at you, it's definitely something out of your nightmares. More than that, though, I love that her presence in the game immediately forces you to change tactics. It's really easy to get caught up in the run-and-gun gameplay that is Left 4 Dead, but what makes the game so special is working together with your friends to make it out of those scenarios that you're playing through. When a witch is around, though, you really need to be cautious and work together in order to get past her. You especially need to work together if you accidentally startle her and send her into a murderous rage. But take it from me, do not be that teammate that startles the witch because you weren't paying attention. Because your teammates may not have any pity on you for your carelessness, and you may find yourself left for dead. <laughs> Number 7 Taking the number 7 spot on my list of favorite video game enemies are the Metroids from the Metroid franchise. Those of you that have been following the podcast for a while now might know that I don't really have very many Metroid games under my belt, but of the games that I have played, the Metroids themselves have made quite an impression on me in the short time that I've spent with them, enough to make number 7 on my list. Right off the bat, you can sort of understand how prominent Metroids themselves are, seeing as how the games themselves are named after them, but it is much more than that for me. For those of you who don't know, Metroids are an alien species that tend to hover around and attack their prey by attaching themselves to it and draining their life force away, which the Metroids use as nourishment. While the Metroid can take many forms, especially in newer iterations of the series, it's most visually known for its jellyfish-like appearance. Looking through its clear outside, you can see red nuclei-looking blobs which give way to claw-like appendages at the bottom side of the creature. Typically what happens is in the game, the Metroid will descend upon the player and attach themselves. You have to think quickly here as the Metroid will start draining your health at a pretty fast rate. Mashing the buttons on your controller won't get them off of you, though. Usually you'll need to crouch down and enter into a morph ball, and then drop a few bombs which will then repel the Metroid. But that won't kill it, and they'll usually start to swoop right back towards you pretty quick if you aren't paying attention. 
In order to defeat them, you need to utilize their main weakness, which happens to be extreme cold. Using her ice beam, Samus can freeze the Metroids and then finish them off with a few missile blasts. The first Metroid game I played was Zero Mission on the Game Boy Advance. Near the back half of the game, you enter an area called Tur- Turian? Tur- Turan. Tur- that one place. You're met with an introduction to the Metroid threat when you're forced to watch four of them suck the life out of a space pirate. The scene established the threat that the Metroids posed very quickly and immediately had me on edge. Once we take control of Samus and make our way through the area, we find the dead bodies of several space pirates on the ground, with all of their life energy drained away. It was actually a little unnerving for me the first time I went through this section. Zero Mission, as well as the other Metroid games, do a fantastic job of making the player feel isolated and alone within the sprawling game world. As you progress, you find new items and upgrade your equipment, which enhance your ability to explore and combat new threats. But there was something about the Metroids themselves that made me question if I was able to fight them and win at all. The atmosphere was dark and foreboding, and when the Metroids do show up, they appear seemingly out of nowhere, giving you very little time to react. And when one of them latches onto you, they invoke a genuine feeling of panic. The Metroid creature itself sees many forms over the many games in the series, but the original larvae form in the earlier games is the one that stands out to me as one of my favorite enemies. Not only did they keep the game fresh from a gameplay standpoint, they are the perfect enemy used to solidify the atmosphere that the developers were trying to create. It's one thing to see an iconic enemy on screen, but it's another to feel genuine fear or anxiety when you see it making its way towards you. Metroids have an uncanny ability to immerse players further into the gameplay experience, and that absolutely gives it a spot on my list, even if I haven't played as many games in the series as I should have. Over on our Retro Wildlands Twitter page, Brando chimed in with their favorite video game enemy and said, I'd say the Space Pirates from the Metroid series. Not always easy to defeat, but the variety of pirates you encounter keeps them from becoming mundane. Now that's a good call, Brando. I was honestly going back and forth myself when making this list. The space pirates themselves were on my shortlist for a little while, but I eventually bumped them off. But I will say they absolutely belong on anybody's list. The Space Pirates in the Metroid series are a bipedal alien race that have large claws for hands, sort of like crabs, though their appearance tends to change a bit in other games. In entries like Zero Mission, though, they make for some formidable adversaries. If I remember right, when you first encounter them, you aren't able to combat them very effectively and they present themselves as a pretty substantial threat. They're very fast, agile, and will even crawl through tight spaces to come after you. That alone made them worthy of my list, but I wanted to choose one or the other, and the sheer fear factor of the Metroid is what put them over the top for me. Still, Space Pirates are awesome and are fantastic video game enemies. Thank you for writing into the show, Brando. I really appreciate the comment. Number 6 
Number six on my list of favorite video game enemies goes to the Crimson Heads in the Resident Evil Remake. I hope by just mentioning the Crimson Heads, somebody out there just shivered. These enemies were the stuff of nightmares and made an already amazing game even more iconic. And it's not just the enemy itself that stands out amongst the pack. It's how its inclusion into the game completely changed the entire experience for the player the moment you learn of their existence. So for the uninitiated, the original Resident Evil that came out on the PlayStation was remade in 2002 exclusively for the Nintendo GameCube. It's actually this game that prompted me to purchase my first GameCube back in the day. I think most of us probably know the story of the OG Resident Evil at this point. You're held up in a mansion buried deep in the mountains, and there's zombies and other nasty creatures loose that mean to rip your throat out and show you what your insides look like. But the Resident Evil remake vastly expanded on this premise with a masterclass in visual presentation and sound design. But the remake wasn't just the same experience with a new coat of paint. The game was completely reworked from the ground up. The fixed camera angles and overall spirit of the game were left intact, but Remake brought so much new to the table that this game was a sheer delight for all lovers of the series, both new and old. But of all the new additions, it was the Crimson Heads that changed everything. So normally when you put a zombie down in the original Resident Evil, they stay down. They don't come back, and you can roam around the area that you were in with relative safety. If you ration your ammo well enough, you could effectively clear away most enemies from areas in the game, like the mansion, the courtyard, the guardhouse, whatever, and it makes you feel like you're actually taking it back from the monsters. As you slowly conquer these areas, you start to feel pretty damn good in the process. But in the Resident Evil remake, all of that goes right out the window. You see, when you kill a regular zombie in the remake, it goes down and it does stay down, but the body will still remain in the environment. When an undetermined amount of time passes, the zombie will come back to life as a mutated horror known as the Crimson Head. This version of the zombie is much faster, more deadlier, and even harder to kill. They pose a true threat to your survival, but it isn't just their sheer strength and speed that make them such a threat. It's knowing that they could be a threat, depending on the actions that you take in the game. Now, there's a few ways to prevent a Crimson Head from becoming a threat, and they all stem from completely destroying the body of a zombie. First, if you decapitate a zombie, it will not come back as a Crimson Head. You can accomplish this task primarily with the shotgun in most cases if you aim up just as the zombie is about to grab you. Another way that you can destroy the body of a zombie is by setting the body of the zombie on fire. The most common way to do this is with kerosene and a lighter. Once you find a canteen, you can fill it with kerosene from containers that are scattered around the mansion. Down a zombie, use some kerosene on it, set it on fire, and you're good. The problem here is, there isn't enough kerosene in the game to permanently kill all the zombies that you're going to come across, so you have to be strategic about what corpses that you use resources on to put them down, and then what resources you want to use to set them on fire. 
But if nothing else, you can avoid the zombie altogether, and as long as you don't kill it, it will not come back as a crimson head. Now this is a risky option on its own because now you'll have a constant threat in an area that you'll need to consistently navigate around. It may be slower, but you still run that risk of it grabbing you if you're not paying attention. The whole idea behind this enemy turns classic survival horror on its head and really makes you think about how you move around the mansion and use your limited resources that are available to you. Plus, the Crimson Heads just look completely badass, and their inhuman growls are enough to send shivers down the spines of many a gamer. Anytime you're moving around the mansion and you come across a corpse, you can't help but feel yourself clench up just a little bit. Is it going to transform and come after me? Will I be safe? Combine all of this with the game's amazing presentation, and you have yourself a recipe for one of the most memorable horror experiences in all of gaming. Now to lighten the mood back up a little bit, let's hear from another commenter. Unbuckled Comics over on our Instagram page wrote in and said, Ooh, great topic, my guy. Thank you, Unbuckled. So anytime I can, I love playing as Hammer Bro and Shy Guy for whatever reason, but I think my top spot would have to go to the Grunts in the Halo series. Who doesn't love these little guys? They're all overconfident jerks until you take out their leader, then they can't run away fast enough. Their dialogue makes me laugh, as does when one sticks itself with a plasma grenade. I haven't played Halo since Reach, but the Grunts will always be my favorite enemy. Oh yeah, nice call out there, Unbuckled. I personally don't have much Halo experience under my belt, but I can say this next thing with utter confidence. Forget Master Chief. The Grunts are what make this game series great, no question. They weren't your regular run-of-the-mill enemies. They really would try and run away in terror from you. They got into all sorts of little shenanigans, and their dialogue is just downright hilarious. Like, listen to this. Listen to some of this stuff. <laughs> so many targets! Dig deep! Find the mass murderer that lives inside of you and let him out! I got big dreams. Step one, kill humans. Step two, take over for Esherim as war chief. I hope you like getting killed by grenades! Even if I played more Halo, I'm not really sure the Grunts would have made it onto my list at all, but they would have been a contender, if for no other reason than the fact that they have the ability to make me chuckle. Thanks for writing in, Unbuckled. Oh, and for those of you listening that are comic book fans, check out the Unbuckled Comics podcast. And if you do check it out, tell Unbuckled that Nomad sent you. Number For my number 5 pick, I went with the Necromorphs from the Dead Space series. Oh, the Necromorphs. 
Those listening that have played any game in the Dead Space series have a pretty good idea why the Necromorphs are on my list of favorite enemies. Set primarily in space, but also on some distant planets, the Dead Space series has you playing as Isaac Clarke, an engineer that finds himself in some extraordinary situations. In the first game specifically, Isaac is part of a crew that comes across a spaceship known as the USG Ishimura, which appears to have gone dark. Isaac and a small crew make their way onto the Ishimura and immediately discover the reason why the ship went silent. All throughout the ship there are hideous creatures known as necromorphs, and these creatures are not to be fucked with. Most necromorphs used to be human, so they keep their humanoid characteristics. However, they've mutated into mere shadows of their former selves. Their bodies are torn open, their faces are elongated, and they often come with long, spiked, or sharpened appendages that they'll use to slash or impale their victims. Necromorphs are highly aggressive and can move surprisingly fast, and this is evident in the very opening moments of the first game. These are not your regular zombified enemies that shamble around moaning and groaning as they go. The Necromorphs quickly establish their place on the food chain, and it is several tiers above you. Now, what makes the Necromorphs such an awesome enemy isn't just their outward appearance and overall design. While the Necromorphs look very badass, especially if grotesque, infected, mutated, alien zombie-looking creatures are your thing, it's how you combat them that really make them something special. Dead Space is a third-person, over-the-shoulder style game, and you as the player can grab weapons like plasma cutters and other tools and use them like firearms. If conventional video game wisdom has taught us anything, it's that shooting the head is the way to go. However, the necromorphs do not go down with a headshot. Not at all, actually. Shooting a necromorph's head off of its shoulders will certainly remove it, but it will not stop coming after you so it can rip you apart. If anything, shooting off a necromorph's head is just going to piss it off and make it more aggressive. So, what's a player to do? You actually have to dismember the necromorphs to kill them. The game itself allows for precision shooting, and the only way to do damage to these baddies is by shooting off their arms and legs. I know, it's crazy, but it works. And I don't mean just from a takedown standpoint, I mean this whole idea works as a gameplay mechanic. You see, right off the bat, Dead Space immediately puts the player, just like Isaac Clarke, in a situation where you both feel very, very out of your element. Isaac the Engineer has no combat training and has never faced a threat quite like this before. You, as the player, have to forget everything you know about standard shooters if you want to survive this game. Ammo conservation is a concern at times, and this requires you to be very deliberate with your shots. Pumping round after round into an enemy is not going to get it done, though. You need to take your time, you need to keep your cool, and you have to land your shots. The whole idea creates a fantastic premise. And when you do shoot the limbs off of your enemy, they'll respond accordingly. If you take out one of their arms, that's one less way that they can damage you. 
If you take out their legs, you can sit back and watch them fall to the ground. Once they're on the ground, though, you can't rest. You still need to continue with your dismemberment in order to kill them. The necromorphs are truly terrifying creatures that seem unstoppable, but it's up to you to adapt to this new gameplay style in order to see yourself out of a jam. When I think back to the first time I played Dead Space, I still remember finding that one audio log in the game where someone who came before you figured out how to kill the necromorphs. The way his voice was full of tension and just a little bit of hope set the mood for the entire game for me. It was chilling, it was haunting, and I will never forget it. This is Benson, Tram Engineering. We think we figured it out. Smith killed one. Listen, forget about shooting him in the body. You gotta cut off the limbs. Grab a cutter, anything like that. Cut him apart! Number 4 Keeping with the theme of creepy, crawly enemies whose mere presence changes how you approach the situation, number four on my list of favorite video game enemies are the Lickers from Resident Evil 2. These skinless creatures are also the stuff nightmares are made of, and their introduction to the player will go down in history as one of the most iconic and intense reveals in all of gaming. Considered by many, including myself, to be the best game in the entire Resident Evil franchise, RE2 has you playing as either Leon or Claire as they make their way into Raccoon City, all while completely oblivious to the zombie outbreak that is wildly out of control by the time that they arrive. After our two heroes meet up, they make their way to the Raccoon City Police Department in order to find help and refuge, but instead they only find death and unspeakable horrors. Anyone who's heard of the Resident Evil universe probably knows that it's the many zombies that tend to make up most of the games, especially the earlier ones. They shamble at you slowly, moaning as they lift their arms in hopes of ensnaring you in their grasp, so that they can sink their teeth into you and tear away at your flesh. The zombies in Resident Evil are a pretty decent threat, but with enough planning and stockpiled ammo, you can either navigate around them or you can take them out permanently. They might invoke a sense of fear early on, but it doesn't take too long for that fear factor to wear off and zombies become just another bump in the road for you. But very early in Resident Evil 2, the game changes all of that with the introduction of the liquor. After you make it to the police station, you start to feel a little safer and you might even let your guard down a little bit. There's no zombie hordes on the streets coming after you, and you're feeling pretty secure inside the big building. As you start to explore, you make your way through the reception area on the first floor. As you round the corner, the camera moves to behind your character, and there's a window pointing outside that's in front of you. In a flash, something crawls across the window. It makes absolutely no sound. It's there 
and then it's gone. At this point, most players, I'm sure, started to get just a little uneasy. When you go into the next area and walk down the long hallway, you'll come across a few corpses and a large puddle of blood. When you get to that large puddle of blood, you're met with a CGI cutscene that introduces the liquor in spectacular fashion. It's attached to the ceiling and it moves slowly at first. It's a gangly looking thing with absolutely no skin, so all you see is exposed muscle. It has long claws, razor-sharp teeth, and its brain is completely exposed to the point that it covers the whole head and comes down where the creature's eyes should be. It opens its mouth and exposes a very long tongue and moans its now infamous moan. Then all of a sudden, it drops down from the ceiling and the CGI cutscene ends and the player retakes control. I'm sure different players probably reacted differently when this happened to them for the first time. I remember making it a point to run past the creature into the next room. I wanted no part of whatever the fuck that thing was. But when I think back to the entire encounter and how it made me feel when I played through the game, what really stuck with me though was not just the idea that the game was introducing a really cool new enemy for me to fight, it was the fact that it was introduced so early. I had barely started the game, and already I was introduced to a brand new threat outside of the zombies. Knowing that these creatures were out there somewhere made exploring the police station and other areas of the game that much more intense. What makes the liquor stand out even more as a badass enemy was the fact that they could not see the player. Since they don't have any eyes, they operate purely off of sound. You don't know this though when you have your first initial encounter with them, but you do learn this later when you play through the game, and this revelation adds yet another layer to how players interact and deal with this creature. When you enter a room, it's not always obvious a liquor might be there. They like to hang on walls or hang out in corners. But if you keep your ears open, you might be able to hear them skulking around or moaning to themselves. What I love about the liquor is that, as soon as you discover one of them is in the room with you, your approach to the situation immediately changes. You tend to just stop moving and you think, all while panicking a little. It's in that moment right there that you have to decide if you want to take this creature on or if you think you can sneak past it. If you do try and sneak past it, the tension in those moments are very thick as you're hoping and praying the creature doesn't hear you walking by. But on the other hand, if you decide to engage it in combat, those moments can be just as tense as well, because these creatures will not go down very easy, and if they get a good hit on you, you can kiss your ass goodbye. It's these reasons right here that I love the liquor, and even after beating Resident Evil 2 multiple times, they still give me a bit of anxiety anytime I know that they're near. Now, the liquor itself has gone on to become sort of a series staple at this point, and it's depicted in several different forms across several different games now. But my heart will always belong to the original liquors in Resident Evil 2. Now before we moved on to number 3 on my list, I wanted to toss out a few more listener comments. K 
Cody over on our Facebook page wrote in and called out Clyde from Pac-Man. You all remember the four ghosts from Pac-Man, right? Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. Clyde is the orange ghost, and if I recall correctly, he's more of the oddball of the group. While the other three ghosts are off trying to chase down Pac-Man in their own ways, Clyde tends to kind of do his own thing, especially when he gets too close to Pac-Man. Whenever I played Pac-Man with my mom back in the day while we were waiting for our food at the local pizza place near us, I remember singling out Clyde as the outsider of the group. Once he got close to Pac-Man, I noticed that he tended to divert away from him, and he would head back towards the left bottom side of the screen before turning back and giving Pac-Man chase again. It was really interesting, kind of like, I want to chase you, but I kind of don't want to chase you. The ghosts themselves are very iconic enemies in their own right, and without them, Pac-Man would not be as fun and amazing as it is. Great call out here, Cody, and thank you for interacting with the show. Brandon from The Game Junction chimed in as well over on our Facebook page and called out Splash Woman from Mega Man 9. While I wouldn't have considered her as part of this list since we're focusing more on the rank-and-file enemies in games, Splash Woman is pretty awesome and certainly deserves some love. She is the one and only female robot master in the mainline Mega Man series, and she can be a pretty tough opponent, too. I think she's also one of the few robot masters that can actually summon other enemies to fight for them as well. Her design is really awesome, and she sports a wicked-looking trident that she can use to rain down the pain from above. Her weakness, though, is the Hornet Chaser weapon, so as long as you have that, you'll be in very good shape when you go to take her on. Still, though, I don't think people talk about Splash Woman all that much, so I'm happy to give her a little love on the show today. Thank you very much for writing in, Brandon. I hope all is going well for you, my friend. Number 3 The video game enemy that I consider to be my third favorite comes from one of the many Final Fantasy games. Can you guess which one? I will give you a hint. The enemy is small, it has green skin, they're usually carrying lanterns, and they love waddling around holding a chef's knife. Yes, you guessed it, it's Tonberry. Everyone's favorite adorable little murder machine. We had a couple listener comments come in after I made my list that called out Tonberry, and I think they both perfectly capture its essence. Aimless Gaming Screenshots over on our Retro Wildlands Instagram page wrote in and said, For me, it has to be the Tonberry from the Final Fantasy games. I just love how unassuming and cute they are, but then they just slowly approach you and shank you for massive damage, which in turn actually makes them kind of creepy. And Curtis from our Facebook page doubled down in a separate comment that he submitted and said, Tonberry. Definitely Tonberry. 
They're originally from Final Fantasy V and became a staple of the series. Seemingly harmless looking, these little guys have no weaknesses, and they just creep towards you, doing nothing. Until they finally get close enough and suddenly do max damage to a character for an insta-kill. Silly little cute murder beasts. Yeah, I don't think I could have set this one up any better than you two. Tonberries are harmless looking, can certainly be a little creepy, and they can deal massive damage to you without a second thought. And while all of that sounds horrible, there's an element of charm that the Tonberry brings to the table, which makes it all the more interesting. Thank you both for writing into the show, I appreciate the comments. Now I'd like to think that most gamers, whether you've played a Final Fantasy game before or not, have heard of the Tonberry, or potentially have seen it before. Like Curtis said in his comments, it first appeared in Final Fantasy V, and has been a series staple ever since. It's a very cute, unassuming creature, but most players will never forget their very first encounter with one. Tonberries are short, they have green skin, cute eyes, and is rounded out with a fishtail. It even has this cute little waddle when it makes its way over to your party in battle. On the outside, it looks like it poses very little threat, and you can't help but wonder what all the fuss is about. But then you engage it in battle and you realize that it is not going down so easily. It just keeps getting closer and closer to you. Then it uses its chef knife, stabbing one of your party members. Then that party member just dies. Instant death. Then your eyes go wide, your grip on your controller gets a little bit tighter, and then you realize something. This is bad. This is really, really bad. Once you learn how powerful this little creature can be, you will always be apprehensive to engage one in battle, no matter what your party composition is, or how high a level you are, and that really says something about this enemy. How it can strike fear into the most seasoned of gamers. Once you witness its raw power and understand how dangerous it is, you will never forget. Now, while each Tonberry from each Final Fantasy does vary some of its attacks, it has become an instantly recognizable enemy that immediately strikes fear in gamers, but also garners a sort of respect from them as well. The Tonberry forces you to take a step back and really consider how you approach it in battle. Another attack that some Tonberries have is called Karma, or otherwise known as Everyone's Grudge. This ranged attack will do damage proportionate to the amount of enemies that character has defeated in the course of the game up to that point. Usually Karma is a counter-attack and a way for Tonberry to attack your party without being close to it. It can be especially devastating if you try and use your best party members who have probably slain countless enemies up to that point. I remember having to relegate Cloud to a defensive role in Final Fantasy VII whenever I would encounter a Tonberry because the sheer amount of enemies I killed with Cloud made it to where the Karma ability practically killed him outright. It really threw me for a loop and completely changed the game for me. So all of that said, Tonberry simply stands as one of the greatest gaming enemies of all time. It has an outward appearance that just seems so likable, and you can't deny that the little guy just looks pretty damn cute. But as soon as you understand what a Tonberry is capable of, every single time you see one going forward, you will instinctively approach it with caution. 
You don't fear the Tonberry so much as you respect it, and if you're able to defeat it in battle, it is a feat that should be celebrated. Just be mindful of that knife he carries. That is one thing you want to stay as far away from as you can. Now before moving away from Final Fantasy, we had one more listener comment this week. Nathan over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page called out everyone's favorite Final Fantasy antagonist, Sephiroth. Nathan added a bit more to his comment, but I decided to leave it off the show since it contained a heavy story spoiler on the off chance someone listening hasn't played the game yet. And while Sephiroth doesn't count for this specific list since he's certainly not a regular enemy, Sephiroth is an enemy to be feared and respected just as much as the Tonberry. Those that know what he's capable of understand his power, and yet there's always been something so charming about this character too. Maybe it's the outfit, the incredibly long sword, or his luscious hair that he clearly spends a lot of time on each morning. And while there's certainly valid arguments when it comes to ranking Sephiroth against the other Final Fantasy antagonist, you cannot deny that Sephiroth will always be one of the most badass of the bunch. Thank you very much for taking the time to submit a comment to the show, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Number two. If I ever decided to rank my favorite video games of all time, The Last of Us would easily make my top 5 list, maybe even my top 3. And of all the things that this game does well, the enemies in this game are masterfully done. Specifically, the clickers. Ah yes, the clickers. Necromorphs and Lickers are certainly something to behold, and amazingly scary creatures, but the Clickers. Oh boy, the Clickers, baby. These monsters will make any grown adult shit their pants at the mere sound of them, and when it comes to how they impact gameplay in The Last of Us, let's just say that they make any encounter with them memorable. On the off chance that you've been living under a rock, which is completely fine if it's a comfy rock and you're happy with it, The Last of Us is a third-person action-adventure game set in a post-apocalyptic United States. The world has been ravaged by a mutated, real-world fungus called Cordyceps. Those infected by the Cordyceps fungus turn ravenous and hostile, and quickly the infection spreads. Governments fall, cities burn, and humanity is divided. In the game itself, players take control of Joel. Joel is a man who lost his daughter during the initial outbreak, who now makes his living as a smuggler operating out of a quarantine zone in Boston. Early in the game, Joel is tasked with escorting a young girl named Ellie out of the quarantine zone to a rebel militia group. 
what seems like a simple drop-and-go job turns into something much more, and the journey that Joel and Ellie embark on is one of the most beautiful, heartfelt, tense, scary, and memorable stories that I have personally experienced. Now, we all know that any character's journey is defined by the challenges that are laid before them on their way to their destination. For Joel and Ellie, while they need to be mindful of other humans who don't have their best interests in mind, they'll need to be cautious of the infected. Cordyceps infection in humans will continually spread as time goes on. The longer someone is infected, the more the fungus grows on them, and it changes them too. Regular infected are fast and somewhat agile. They'll stop at nothing to tear into their victims and spread the infection. But while the regular infected are pretty fast and nimble, it's still a human body that's coming at you, and they're still pretty easy to put down with a few well-timed punches or a well-placed bullet. The clickers, on the other hand, are a completely different story. After a human host has been infected for a year or more, the fungus will have spread throughout their body considerably. Their skin is covered all over in fungal growth, but most notably on their head. The fungal growth is so advanced that it actually pushes their eyes out of their sockets, effectively rendering the host blind. The growth on their heads is so thick that it almost acts as protection for the brain, leaving only a set of jagged teeth behind where their mouth used to be. Because the clickers are blind, these creatures develop a sort of echolocation to locate their prey. They do this by emitting a series of clicks and crackling noises, hence why they're called clickers. When playing The Last of Us, you often find yourself taking your time through areas and exploring. The threat of the infected is constant, but generally you're able to go toe-to-toe with the lesser infected most of the time. You might even be able to sneak up on some of them that are unaware, and you can take them out silently. But everything changes the moment a clicker is somewhere near you. As a player, I guarantee that you will immediately stop what you're doing, hold your breath, and remain completely still in the game and in real life when you hear that noise. But what makes a clicker so dangerous, you might be wondering? It's very simple. All they have to do is grab you. Unless you have a shiv on you and the ability to use it on a clicker, all they have to do is take hold of you and you are screwed. They're going to take a bite clean out of you and at that point you are done. Game over. Because of this, the stakes are incredibly high when clickers are around, and you need to make sure that you're staying completely silent. You can move past them if you stay low to the ground and move slowly, though. And on top of that, clickers can be taken down silently if you have a shiv to use, but even then, you have to be extremely careful. If you move just a little too fast and generate even the slightest bit of noise, the clicker will turn around and will have you for its lunch. Now on the surface, this doesn't really sound like all that complex of an enemy or anything special. I mean, it sounds just like the liquor we talked about earlier. And when I say that out loud, I might be inclined to believe that this creature isn't anything special. 
if not for the type of game that The Last of Us is and the setting that it takes place in. What this game does exceptionally well is world building, and because of that, the enemies that you face in this world really feel like an extension of the experience rather than just a mere obstacle to overcome. More than that, though, there's genuine tension and risk that is built into the narrative that makes getting spotted by one of these creatures more than just a mild inconvenience. Sure, if you die, you can just start over from a checkpoint, but that's not what I'm getting at. There has never been a video game enemy that puts me through the emotional ringer quite like the clickers. As soon as you hear them, you cannot help but tense up just a little bit and straighten up just a little straighter in your seat. You'll need to use every resource that you have at your disposal to see yourself past this threat. But if you get spotted, you need to keep calm and have some steady aim. Or else your journey will come to an abrupt end. Blind motherfuckers make my skin crawl. Number My number one favorite video game enemy goes to the Goomba from pretty much every Super Mario game out there. When I was making this list, the Goomba was my number one pick almost immediately, and while there are a ton of awesome enemies out there in the gaming world, I feel like it would be a complete disservice to all who hold gaming dear if the Goomba did not have this top spot. I mean, think about it. I don't know about all of you, but for me, the Goomba was my very first video game baddie ever. Now, I have to assume that most of us listening have played the original Super Mario on the Nintendo. So that said, think back to the very first level, World 1-1. What is the first thing that we see waddling towards us? A Goomba, that's what we see. I can almost remember the very first time I played Super Mario as a kid. I had no idea what was going on. I just assumed I needed to keep moving to the right, and that was that. The concept of an enemy meant nothing to me in that moment. This little brown mushroom thing did not seem like a threat at the time. I mean, he did have a scowl on his face, but whatever. I was young. I didn't know any better. I walked over to the little brown mushroom creature, and when I touched it... Holy shit, I died. But in that moment, as a five or six-year-old or however old I was, 
I learned the most important lesson of my life. A lesson that has guided me for many years since. The world is a dangerous place, and unless you can think on your feet and find ways to overcome obstacles, you are not going to make it. Going back to the game, if you're walking in World 1-1 and you don't find a way to avoid or take out the Goomba, you will never get anywhere. And if that isn't a life lesson, I don't know what is. But seriously, while the Goomba was more than likely the very first video game enemy for a lot of us out there, I argue there are very few enemies that are more iconic and recognizable. Sure, you can take them out pretty easily. All it takes is a single stomp, one fireball, or a Koopa shell to the face to see them defeated, but you still do need to keep your guard up around them. Over time, though, and throughout multiple Super Mario titles, the Goombas don't change all that much, but they do evolve a bit and start to come with a few different tricks up their non-sleeves. You know, because of the whole no-arm thing. Anyway, I remember getting a hold of Super Mario 3 and seeing the Goombas again. While they remained standard issue, I was surprised and somewhat horrified to see them jumping around while wearing these big green Goomba shoes. There was something about that moment specifically, and from then on, I found myself liking the Goomba and almost feeling bad anytime I had to murder one of them. But beyond that one variant, across many more titles, we'll see a ton of Goomba variants. There was the Paragoomba that could float around using a pair of wings, the Ghost Goomba and Aqua Goombas from Super Mario Land 2, Prickly Goombas from Super Mario Bros. Wii, Jacko Goombas from Super Mario Galaxy 2, the Bone Goomba from New Super Mario Bros. 2, oh, the Cat Goomba from Bowser's Fury, and really, the list just keeps going on and on. As the Mario franchise kept evolving over the years, the Goomba evolved with it. It created new challenges for the player and helped keep the franchise fresh and exciting. Goomba is practically a household name at this point, and I argue Mario and Luigi wouldn't be what they are today without the Goomba always being there to be stomped on and kicked around. And besides all of that, whenever I play Mario Party on my Nintendo Switch, I always pick the Goomba because he is just the most badass out of all the characters. Everything I mentioned aside though, I cannot think of a better pick for the top spot on this list. Whenever we look at our heroes or those that we look up to, especially in media like books, movies, and video games, our heroes usually get to their hero status by going on the hero's journey. After the hero accepts the call to adventure and passes through the threshold, they are met with tests, trials, and enemies that will try and halt their progress. While every good hero has a villain that balances out their weaknesses and helps them grow, I argue it's more the enemies that you face before that final boss encounter that really help our heroes grow. Through repeated trials and confrontations, the standard enemies that we face help us learn the skills that we need to succeed and build our confidence while playing through our games. If the Goomba in World 1-1 didn't teach us how to jump past them or on top of them, there's no way we would be able to face the final challenge at the end of it all. That is why the Goomba is so iconic, and why I think we as players have such reverence for it.
It was helping us along our gaming journeys all of this time so we would have the skills and strength needed to face tougher challenges. And that's why when we see the Goomba now, we view it with a sense of respect and we even care about those little bastards a little bit. So when you're playing your next video game, and you're taking down that zombie, cutting up that grub with a lancer, or slaying that dragon in Skyrim, just remember that it was the Goomba that helped get you to the badass gamer that you are today. That brings us to the end of episode 38 of the Retro Wildlands, my top 10 favorite video game enemies. Thank you very much for listening to the show today. There are a ton of podcasts out there about video games, and I am absolutely honored and humbled that you decided to spend your time on mine and see it through to the end. Expeditions into the Wildlands are always something I look forward to, and having you with us makes the journey that much more enjoyable. And I hope at the end of the day you had a good time and enjoyed my list. What did you think about my top 10 favorite video game enemies list? Would your list be any different? I would honestly love for you to reach out to us over on our social media pages and let me know. You can find the Retro Wildlands over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even YouTube. All you need to do is hop onto those services, search at Retro Wildlands, and you should find us. Feel free to give us a follow and interact with our posts, or you can message me directly if you just wanted to chit-chat. I love meeting new people, and I especially love talking to people about video games. And even if you just want to be a lurker on our pages and hang out in the back, there's a spot for you there as well, so head on over to our socials and join up. Now before you go, if you like the show and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to the Retro Wildlands on your preferred podcasting platform. I would also really appreciate it if you could take a few minutes and leave the Retro Wildlands a good review on your podcasting platform if your platform allows you to do that. Good reviews will help circulate the podcast and put us a bit higher in search results, or at least I think that's how that works. But if nothing else, a good review will make me feel like a million bucks, and that sounds like a fantastic feeling to me. So, what's coming up on our next episode? There is a very good chance that I'm going to be talking about UN Squadron from the Super Nintendo. It's a shoot-'em-up style game that I am pretty sure flew under the radar for most people, sort of like how Gunsmoke slipped by me when I was a kid, and I am very eager to talk about this one. I finished this game about a month ago now, and I think I want to talk about it before some of the finer details slip my mind. There are a few other games that I'm playing through as we speak, so it's possible that we'll talk about something else, too. Just depends on what my heart longs for and what I feel like writing a script on. I do also have some listener recommendations I'm going to be start working on here soon, so if you have a game you think I'd enjoy and would like to hear me talk about on the show, shoot me a message over on social media. 
Either way, though, I'll be back again soon with another episode, and I hope you'll come back again and join me by the campfire once again. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me... roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>